This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by Isabel Hardman and James Forsyth. So YouGov has released another poll showing what members would think of Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss as we go into the membership stage over the next few weeks. It actually shows Liz Truss 24 points ahead of Rishi Sunak and also leading in all groups except for Tory members who voted for Remain in 2016. As well, what did you make of this poll? Well, I think it does show the difference between the Parliamentary Conservative Party and the membership at large because... Rishi Sunak uh, was the front runner throughout the parliamentary stages of this contest, whereas we already knew that Liz Truss was one of the the, the membership's favourite politicians consistently for the past few months and years. And uh, so I, I think it, it, it shows that there's a, a disjoint between those two groups. And obviously, we've talked a lot about the splits within the, uh, the parliamentary party, but I think also it's a sign that... Uh, that the healing that should take place after this leadership contest may well be quite difficult on all sides. It also shows that this is now Liz Truss's to lose and ballots start to go out on the 1st of August. So Rishi Sunak doesn't actually have that much time before Tory members start to receive their votes. However, that is assuming that Tory members vote early and then don't vote often because in this contest they have two chances to vote they only get one vote but they can vote by post and online and it's the vote that the party receives the latest that they count so it may well be that they initially vote Liz Truss and then suddenly realise that Rishi Sunak is a better Margaret Thatcher impersonator and they send in an online vote later on so that makes things a little bit more volatile it may also be that the average conservative member is not so obsessed that they want to send two votes in so but there is a sort of degree of unpredictability there but certainly Rishi Sunak has a lot of ground to make up in the TV debates in these membership hustings that are going out around the country and in I suppose the air war in the papers that conservative members in particular read. James how is the Rishi Sunak camp feeling about this poll because it is quite a big increase and, and after the last poll that came out their argument was that they're, they're making up the gap that they're catching up to other candidates well this is going the other direction. So I think one of the intriguing things about this poll and Isabel is totally right in that it shows it clearly shows that Rishi Sunak has you know He's got a sprint, right? And he's not got that much, that long to make up this gap. But, you know, and, it, and he's got a big a, a big job of work ahead of him. I would just point to one interesting thing in the poll, though, which is that Liz Truss is the member's third choice and Richard Sunak is the member's fourth choice. In this poll, they were asked who they would like to vote for and Kerry Badenoch and Paddy Borden are in one and two. Now, the Parliamentary Party declined to send either of those names to the membership. But I think what that suggests is that the, 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 the that this contest is not over in that you would think that if it was over, Liz Truss would have, you know, people would have said, oh, right, now I'm backing Liz Truss. He's now my first choice. The fact that Kevin Badenoch and Penny Morden still hold those one and two spots. And was the poll collected after they had been knocked out? Okay. So, e.g., even though 
members know that they will not be able to vote for them, they are still putting those two ahead. And I mean, that does suggest that there, that there, there might be a certain amount of fluidity to come. But, but obviously, this is a, a, a big lead. It would be, it, it would be absurd to, to claim that it's not. I, I mean, the big question for Rishi Sunak Camp is whether they can do enough in the next what is it, 10 days or so before ballot papers start going out, to make people, you know, I suppose in a way the, the, the question of the success of the Sunak campaign is when the ballot paper lands on people's doormats, do Tory members open it and think, well, actually, I just want to see and hear a bit more before I send this back, or do they decide to return the ballot by, by return of post? And I guess your point about first and second choices is that they're not that enthused about Liz Truss and say they might... No, and if the deal was sealed, you would think that she would have shot up to be their, their first choice. Um, Isabel, Fraser Nelson has written a Telegraph column this week about how Rishi Sunak maybe just hasn't got a fresh enough message. You know, his economic agenda is that he's sensible, that he doesn't want to cut taxes yet, not until inflation is down. But there's nothing materialistically that different from his economic agenda and what the government's approach is currently. So Fraser is making the point that perhaps he needs to change that a little bit, because what's the point of voting out a prime minister if you're not going to change the government's approach? What do you think of that? Should Sunak campaign be thinking about you know, as well as being sensible on economics, you know, how are we actually getting something new to, to, to voters? Yeah, it's funny because it, to a certain extent that there is uh, from both candidates a sort of continuity pitch now in this contest. You've got Liz Truss, who is certainly the, the candidate that Boris Johnson would rather win, who is uh, Boris Johnson with the fun stuff, but also with competence. Uh, whereas Rishi Sunak is competence and Boris Johnson without the fun stuff. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and you know, obviously fun stuff is always a, an easier sell. It's the sort of, you know, would you like a free pony question that pollsters joke about when they say to, to members or to voters, would you like this nice thing? And of course, people are in favour of that. But uh, when it comes to sort of paying for it, then things get a little bit more... Awkward. And I think for Sunak, his, the way he's pitched himself so far in his interviews and so on, um, as well as talking about, you know, the dangers of inflation, has, has been as someone who is willing to tell the truth and is willing to try to stop other people from doing things that aren't a good idea. Uh, so last night he gave an interview to Andrew Marr on LBC where he claimed that he stopped Britain going into another national lockdown over the Omicron variant uh, last Christmas. And uh, I thought that was really striking. Now, obviously, we knew that Sunak was often the one in cabinet saying that we don't we shouldn't go for these this level of restrictions because it's going to hurt the economy by this much. But that sort of pitch of, uh, you know, I stopped some of the mm -hmm. excesses of this government, whether it's on crazy ideas that would have pushed tax up even more or crazy tax cuts that would have pushed up inflation and meant that people couldn't afford their heating bills even you know more, or COVID restriction policy. Is that enough when the reason that the Conservative Party decided to get rid of Boris Johnson was not that they disliked his plan, but they actually disliked the man, that they realised that he was letting them down and trashing their brand? I don't know, but mm -hmm. I, I think it's, you know, it's an interesting question of whether these two candidates, by virtue of not being Boris Johnson in terms of, you know, presiding over a sort of crazed Downing Street culture and basically expecting ministers to lie for you about your mistakes, whether that's enough and, and who will get the most credit for that. 
Mm. I mean, James, on, on that Andrew Marr session where Rishi Sunak took calls from voters, I did think it was interesting that he brought COVID into it because is that a, a, a play at the right of the party who are more lockdown sceptic? Rishi Sunak demonstrating that his credentials there because he has clearly been seen as the more left-wing candidate for some reason in this campaign. So is that something that he could go bigger on in the future? I think I think it was a kind of deliberate reference. I think also I think you know I've known him for a long time. I think what he was, I think also how that happened was quite revealing, which is the system was moving into let's move to a lockdown. You know, better safe than sorry for, for understandable reasons. I think what is interesting there is that he went and gathered the data. So he said, look, actually, let's look at what's happening in South Africa. That implies that a lockdown here might not be necessary. So let's just hold up a second. I think. Mean, he was also trying to say something there about his ways of working, which is, you know, that because he gets on top of the detail, he can make arguments and he can he can kind of get the machine to do things. And so I, I think that was deliberate. I also think there is a kind of, if you think about who was where on the lockdown question for our, I think he is trying to say, look, I was more sceptical of lockdowns and the costs and the other, you know, external consequences of them in terms of lost learning and the like that, than, than many other people in, in the government were. Although it is important to say that critics of Rishi Sunak have come out in the papers today to say that that's not true, that that's not what happened, that the that lockdown has already been decided against by Boris Johnson and the cabinet before Rishi Sunak landed. So I, I guess we don't know necessarily which version is true. Isabel, and just finally about COVID's externalities, there's new figures out today that show that uh, in the last three year, three months of last year, there was a 39% rise of people getting self-funded treatments of private healthcare as opposed to before the pandemic in that period. There's also polling to show that actually voters want the two candidates to talk much more about public services, education, NHS, for example. So what, what do you make of that? Do you think they should be tackling these public service questions much more? Yes, I love it when people talk about public services. So from a selfish point of view, that would be great. But uh, there are lots of sensitivities here. And um, the worry that people in and around the NHS have at the moment with this surge in people going for these, going for private treatment. And and these are people who don't have private medical insurance. They're people who are self-paying. So whether they have got savings and they're digging into those to cover an operation that they can get, you know, months earlier than the long waiting list they're stuck on on the NHS or whether they're actually setting up GoFundMe accounts which is another thing that's that's really been growing recently we're used to seeing Americans we know posting about uh, GoFundMe for operations but actually that's now been something that Britons without means to to, mm-hmm. to self-fund their operations are resorting to that this presents an existential crisis for the NHS where you lose the consent of the middle classes and they were really important in the consent for the National Health Service in 1948 because they were fed up with the medical insurance premiums that they were having to pay at the time to cover their treatments. Their consent was something that the the Blair government feared was going to be lost back in 2000 when waiting lists were last at a worrying high. And you had cases like Mavis Skeet of, of people who died on waiting lists having had their operations repeatedly cancelled. That was something that that really worry politicians that actually you'd you'd start to see people saying, well, actually, you know what, this system isn't working for me. And, you know, as as romantic as I find the story of the NHS, actually, I'm worried about my hip replacement, my cancer, my mental illness, whatever. 
And actually, you know, once I've taken out private medical insurance or once my employer has offered private medical insurance, I find that the uh, that the private system works better, works more efficiently. And and so there is this fear at the moment of, of that. Now, some conservative politicians might say that's not a bad thing. The NHS could do with a little bit more competition from the private sector to, to, to get it going. And I, I certainly think that um, both candidates in this leadership contest would pr- would struggle privately to disagree with the principle of uh, the NHS getting a kick up the backside from more competition. However, you then get on to the other um, political problem around the NHS for the Conservatives, which is they don't really have the, the permission to do these big reforms to it. They are always suspected because they voted against it in 1948 uh, of secretly wanting to get rid of it in some way. And We've talked a lot about the looming figure of Margaret Thatcher over this contest. Now, she initially was quite taken by the idea of switching to a medical insurance based system and uh, then completely freaked out when she realised how the public would punish the Conservatives for you know generations if they ever did that and backed away and uh, did not have a big bang in healthcare reform and had other things like the internal market, which I could bore on for, well, the, the pages of the book I've just finished. There are these sensitivities where when Conservatives want to start talking about big reforms, they immediately come in under suspicion not just from, you know, the left, but actually from the electorate about what they secretly want to do. Even though when you ask people about the NHS and about who provides their NHS care, whether it's a, you know, a private company commissioned by the NHS or not, they don't care because they just want the care. It's it's a minefield. I, I think that just to be to, to talk in crude political terms uh, after after Isabel's analysis, even before the recent COVID spike in the heatwave, by the NHS's own numbers, the waiting list was looking close to 10 million by 2024. I just don't see how the Tory party can win an election if you've got 10 million people on an NHS waiting list in 2024, because it just makes it so easy for Labour. You know, you can't trust the Tories with the NHS. And, you know, Isabel, and I just think that the political ramifications of that are so bad. And I think we haven't, you know, you, you were talking about the NHS waiting list going from, um, Isabel, correct me when I go wrong, about three and a bit million before the pandemic to 10 million by the time of the next election. That, that, is, that is politically, that is completely and utterly disastrous. If the Tory, you know, Michael Gove caused a stir the other day because he, he said something which was quite remarkable for someone to say who's recently been a government minister, that basic functions of a state like passports and driving licences aren't working. The Tories won't win the election unless they can sort that. But they also won't win the election unless they can show people that they are gripping this waiting list problem. Because otherwise people would just say that the combination of the difficulty of getting a GP appointment at the moment and the waiting list... Yes, you, you, can, you can argue, as, as Isabel does very, very lucidly, about the dangers it poses to middle-class consent for the NHS, but it also risks the most massive political backlash for the Tories. James and Isabel, thanks very much. And do catch our Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots coming out tomorrow, where we'll be talking much more about the looming shadow of Margaret Thatcher on this leadership contest with Isabel, James, Fraser Nelson and Matthew Paris, our columnist. Thanks for listening. <laughs>